This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. His name is Dave Gesh, and he is or was the executive producer of The Big Bang Theory, as well as a comedy writer for that show in Third Rock from the Sun and a number of other shows. If you are at all interested in anything having to do with television, entertainment, screenwriting, script writing, comedy, you will find this to be an absolutely fascinating conversation. So with no further ado, here is my interview with Dave Gesh. My extra special guest this week is David Getch. He is the executive producer and writer of television's highest ranked sitcom, The Big Bang Theory. He has been with the show pretty much from the very beginning, right through the season finale, which is taking place in May 2019. He was also a writer at Third Rock from the Sun. Dave Getch, welcome to Bloomberg. Thank you, Barry. Well, it's so great to be here. So... You have a really fascinating history. Uh, how did you start out writing for Third Rock from the Sun? How did that come about? And for some of you who may be a little younger, uh, that was a show with John Lithgow and, and um, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. It was a pretty popular sitcom in its day. How did you find your way there? Well, I first had to learn that you could be a sitcom writer, that that was a job. You didn't know that Growing was a Growing up gig. in Connecticut, right. I loved watching television, but I never thought about... Who wrote that stuff? Who was filming that stuff? Mm-hmm. What, how, what was that business like? And so when I was a senior in high school, there was a guy who just had graduated from college and he came back and he taught for a year at my school. And we ended up doing, we did a little radio station, nothing like this recording studio. Right. And uh, we did a little show there with another teacher. And it was, these guys were hilarious. And it was sitting around like this and just making each other laugh. And he then left that year to go to film school, and within a year and a half, he was a writer on Cheers. So I stayed in touch with wow. him. His name's Rob Long. And a couple years later, he was the executive producer of Cheers. So as I thought about going to college and being a lawyer or doing whatever, in the back of my mind, I always remembered what he described being a sitcom writer was like, which is sitting around in a room with 10 people who are funnier than any of your friends and trying to make them laugh and write a little play and put it on TV, and your grandparents can watch it. And that just, along with a few million other along, people. ideally along with a few million other people, and so um, there were a bunch of other things that I thought about doing, but ultimately, after an interview at Goldman Sachs with a with the fixed income division, uh-huh. um, where I said, you know what, I'm going to go be a sitcom writer. So I moved to Los Angeles. By, by the way, you should know the fixed income desk at Goldman Sachs. Those guys are hilarious. They're hilarious. That meeting was unbelievable because I put on my uncle's, I didn't have a suit, I put on my uncle's tweed suit in the middle of August and I went down there to Wall Street and I sat and talked to this VP and I literally didn't know what fixed income was. Mm-hmm. You know, you just like, you go to Yale, you get well, the interview. Well, when it's broken, you know, you gotta you fix, fix it. it. You gotta fix it, exactly. Makes perfect sense. And I remember her saying, um, uh, you know, when was the last time you read the Wall Street Journal? And I said, well, honestly, this has been a pretty crazy time for me. I'm like 22. I don't have a job. There's nothing going on. She's like, I can't believe you're going to Goldman Sachs and having a meeting. 
and you haven't read the Wall Street Journal. I was like, well, like like I said, things with me and my girlfriend are crazy. So, <laughs> so I, that didn't work so out. That, well, they offered me a job, in fact. Get out! They did, uh, yeah. And then, but they must I, have really liked you, because that did doesn't like, sound like a... Uh, it was a bad start. A winning interview strategy. Yes, yes it was a Listen, bad start. Listen, I apologize, but things are crazy. <laughs> Do you have any other questions? Any other things? Um, and so, um, so you... So the way you get into the old way of getting into uh, Hollywood and being a TV writer is you write you wrote sample scripts mm -hmm. and then you try to get an agent and that agent gets you a job on during staffing season. Now that spec process has changed. It right? has changed a lot. The first thing that's changed is that people don't write old shows like you would write. Uh, a friend, you know, if you wanted to get on a show when Friends is on, you'd write a sample Friends, and then that would show. Even if it, you weren't applying to Friends, ideally, the people at Friends would never read it. It would just be, oh, okay, I know this guy can write in the voice of other characters, and right. he can be a team player on staff. And now, what everybody wants is an original um, spec, mm -hmm. and so uh, there. So that process has changed, and in fact, now. I teach this webisodes class at USC, and I recommend that people just shoot stuff and make it and have a trailer. Do a full video. Make a video. Make make a. It's hard to get anybody to read anything. Right. But if I said to you, "Will you read my 120 page screenplay, or will you watch my two minute video?" You might watch my two minute video. For sure. But from that two minute video, you'd get a sense of, "Hey, this guy. He knows how to write. He knows how to direct. Even if he's in it." He's pretty funny. I'll take a meeting, then I'll read the script. Uh -huh. So there's a the technology's allowed people to break in in a new way. But for me, it was the old fashioned way. It was get a get an agent. Uh, I had a writing partner at the time, and he and I um, went and met Bonnie and Terry Turner, who are the creators of the show. They're married. They're wonderful, and uh, we had one of those just great meetings where we laughed and laughed and this laughed. This is third for Rock, Third Rock from the, the Sun, sun. Right. and then um, and then we got hired at the end of the first season. And how that ran a good couple of seasons. Yeah, didn't so it? that ran for six years. And, right. Um, we started as uh, staff writers, and on the last year, we were the executive producers and showrunners with Christine Zander. So let's break these titles down because they're interesting. Executive producer, showrunner. Everybody kind of knows what a writer is. What's the showrunner do? So there, the way to think about it is that there are people who make suggestions and there are people who decide. Mm -hmm. So the showrunner decides and all the other writers, we're pitching. How about this? How about this? How about that? Right. And you might start as a staff writer and then become a story editor, executive story editor, co-producer, supervising producer, executive producer. But those are just different steps of virtually the same thing, which is you're right. still in the room, you're still pitching, and hopefully you're getting paid a little bit more as you go up the way. And eventually the showrunner is the person who ultimately is responsible for saying they're the managing partner of the show. Yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, the way I think about TV development is really in that VC model, which is where you, you write a pilot and that's a business plan. Right. You say, we think we're going to be able to make 200 of these widgets, these funny shows, but we need some money to, we need some angel investing to make a pilot. And then you make that first pilot. The mm -hmm. network says, okay, go ahead and do that. And then you maybe get your Series A. That's your first season, right? And then you have to get the second season and third season. And in the old days, by the fourth season, you could syndicate. And that would be your IPO. By the old days, you, you can't syndicate after four or five seasons anymore? Well, so uh, Big Bang Theory certainly is the exception to that. And it, and it did very well in syndication. Um, in If you're selling to the new streamers like Hulu and Netflix, they don't have syndication. They own their con own your content right. forever. So they have some different models where they'll say, uh, we'll give you a bonus in the fourth season. And what you're seeing a lot is that shows get canceled in the third season. Right. 
Make, makes a lot of sense. So could a show like Third Rock from the Sun or even Big Bang get off the ground today? Would the political correctness, with the environment today, make that more challenging? It's such an interesting question, and I ultimately have to say probably there's so many places where you could put it out there and there's just so much chance there's so much the, right. the role of a hit show is there's so much luck involved and you think about the stories of how Seinfeld was just six episodes and then was almost canceled Cheers was repeatedly almost, Cheers was almost canceled at the end of the first right. season and then it won an Emmy uh, we got lucky in the first season where there was a writer strike so we did I don't know seven or eight episodes and then we went down and that meant that they repeated all of those eight episodes. And then when the strike ended, because we're a multicam sitcom, we could get up faster and shoot more. Uh-huh. And so people were looking for new stuff and, and we had it. And so to what degree did we think that helped, but you know, there's so many variables in all this. It's hard to know. So um, later this month, I'm going to go see John Lithgow on Broadway. He's got a new play out. You got to work with him and others. What, what was the experience like on Third Rock from the Sun? Some really huge subsequent names out of that yeah it was a it was a magical experience from top to bottom i got to just see the play this past weekend which is wonderful the clinton play and it was um it was so cool because there's an episode of third rock from the sun that my partner and i wrote where laurie metcalf who plays hillary in this play Mm -hmm. um falls in love with John Lithgow's character and they speak to each other only in iambic pentameter. So, and she got nominated for uh, Emmy for that, you know, 20 something years ago. And then later she has uh, in her many many roles, she's also played Sheldon's mom on right. Big Bang Theory. So, seeing them up on stage, I just had I had flashbacks to working with them two decades ago working with John. Did you get to go Big backstage? Yeah, hello? I got to go backstage. Oh, that must have been yeah. Lovely. yeah, it's he he is so remarkable. And uh, I could spend the whole time talking about what uh, what a mensch she is, but probably the best example of that is, you know, you're a star. You don't need to know everybody's name, right? He not only knew everybody, all the writers' names, all the crew's names. There's a Christmas gift that I have framed, and it's an illustration, a cast and crew photo, but he drew it. So he drew every person's face. Really? So imagine. So you not only know your name. And who what they are, like. but what they look like, how to draw them, and then for each person, he colored in that person and said, "To Barry, happy holidays, love John." Really, that's amazing. You He's, know, I almost met him. Just a quick digression. I'm at an event in Vancouver. This has to be like ten years ago, eight years ago, and I love ethnic cuisine. And there is like a crazy top-ranked Indian restaurant in Vin- in Vancouver called. I want to say Vij, something like that, V-I-J. No reservations, but when you get there, they just start feeding you appetizers and drinks while you're waiting. And we sit down at a two-top, and right next to us is John Lithgow. And the food was so good, nobody paid attention to him. Like, he was a big star then. Big star, yeah. Like, in New York or in a place like this, there's like the vibe is, hey, just Let that don't, guy go. right, you don't, it's always bad form to, you know, scream at, at celebrities. Um, and that's a very New York attitude. But I was surprised to see that in Vancouver. I didn't know if it was the town or because the food. Yeah. Crazy delicious. Let's talk a little bit about your really terrible relationship with money, as you have described it, uh, when you were growing up. Explain that. So I um, 
Uh, my parents were teachers, and so we always had enough money, but there wasn't money that was being saved. And uh, so when I started to work in Hollywood, I had some money, and I, I, I didn't know what to do with it. And I think from the very early days, I would always read the business section to try and get worked up. To look, think about what's bad stuff could happen. Okay, and, and there's lots of bad. And stuff. And there's lots of bad stuff, and there's screens and screens of it. And so I would, I describe myself on the writing staff as like the chief warrior because mm-hmm. I was because I knew enough to get scared about the Asian currency markets or what's going to happen. And and I, how is the Asian currency market? There, these I don't days? know. The good news is it doesn't matter. <laughs> My new philosophy. I, I'm a long term investor, so I don't care. <laughs> right. What happened? So in other words. What happened last Tuesday is not relevant to your retirement in 30 exactly. years? Is if, that if what you're you, saying? So for me, it's, uh, it's about if I have, it, what's your time? You must talk about it with your clients all the time. Sure. What's, what's your, what are your goals? What's your time horizon? If you are thinking about 20 years from now, then what happens in today's markets is I'm, is, is I'm so fond of telling people, look at a long-term chart of the market, the single worst day the 1987 crash, 23% one-day crash on a bit long-term chart. It's like a little wiggle. You barely even see it. Although while you're in it, in it, it, well, the world is coming to an end. But that's just a function of perspective. Exactly. And I think that there's this um, problem that I had, which is even after I knew that, I didn't internalize it. There's kind of that aha moment when you start to see how all this stuff fits together. And that's when you have the ability to start feeling better now, not just that, not feeling like okay, I have enough money or I've I'm going to be okay. It's more like I have confidence in this approach that I've taken, and also being comfortable with the uncertainty. So let's talk about that because there's a line that you wrote: "Quote the markets haven't changed; they still go up and down. The difference is I don't anymore." So how did you get from that process of worrying about where the yen was to, hey, markets are volatile. They'll fluctuate, but I can't be bothered. So I was a mess. So I had my, I had my retirement in cash, uh, and the 0809 happens, and it starts, everything starts to tank. And I think to myself, I've been waiting since I'm 13 for this. Right. I knew this is the end of the world. I knew it was going to happen. But it wasn't the end of the world. And it was around that time that I read this article about Gordon Murray, who was writing a mm-hmm. book called The Investment Answer in his race against cancer. He was trying to finish the book before, um, I think it was brain cancer. And so it was an extremely moving article. I ordered the book on Amazon before it came out. I read it, and it things clicked for me in a different way. This idea, understanding how the market works, being a long-term investor, and no one ever talked about having a fiduciary uh, investment advisor. Mm -hmm. And once you realize that there's somebody who's on your side who's not trying to make extra money in every single trade and they're being your partner for the long term, I I sought out an advisor, and it's funny. I once I met with him, I said, "Okay, I'll give you a year to see how it is." So it proves that I didn't really know. I wasn't really a long term <laughs> right, investor. Because twelve months is twelve what, months is enough. I I heard something um, amusing. You had you had your agent, and his brother was an advisor, and you yeah. said, "I've given enough that family enough money." Exactly right. So CAA is one of the leaders of CAA is Brian Lord, and his brother. 
Blaine Lord, I think mm-hmm. is his name, is also an advisor. He's like, I'm already giving ten percent to the to the Lords. I don't need to give eleven. That that's really uh, that's really funny. So, so you're you're looking at um, what is at least by traditional standards a fairly substantial salary. However, there's always the risk. Hey, we could get canceled anytime. Who knows if this show is going to get picked up? How do you deal with that sort of uncertainty? You have to be fairly risk embracing if that's the career choice. So this is what I realized, which is when I became a sitcom writer because I saw my friend get a job on Cheers after a year and a half, I totally mispriced risk. I thought going into Hollywood was going to be a lot easier mm-hmm. and a lot more stable than it was. And once I got there, I was like, oh, my God, this place is a mess. I went to meet an accountant once, and he said, okay, well, what's your, what, what kind of income can you expect over the next five years? And I said, <laughs> well, well, I might never work again, so zero, or I might syndicate a show, so $200 million. So can we budget for somewhere <laughs> right. in between Just that, that. range. Work and with and that, range. that is paralyzing. For, mm-hmm. for, it was paralyzing for a long time. And the difference for me is getting on their side of it and saying, hold on a second, risk, we know risk and reward are related. We right. can either be afraid of that, or we can try to make a little peace with that. And so much of my life, so much of everyone's life is how do you reduce risk, mitigate? How do you try to make everything seem to make more sense? And as a storyteller, um, I was always telling myself stories either to get racked up and nervous or right. try to calm down. And it's hard, but I think trying to get comfortable with that unknown is is that really powerful mm-hmm. I, I I can imagine so I before we leave the investing space I have to ask you have a patent how, how on earth did that happen so I have a couple of friends from college and this was uh, we graduated in the early 90s and uh, we had this idea. We always wanted to start a company, and so all of us were at the beginning of our career. And um, John Zittrain, who's now this internet law professor at Harvard, Harvard right. he's a big, big deal. He had this idea, which was what? Wait, if, he was a colleague or a friend of he yours? He was a friend from college. So, so it turns out it's like uh, this guy Sherman Min, who he just sold his company to Target, um, and. Uh, 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 Zach Meenan, who runs a neuroscience institute in uh, Portugal, and me and Zach and Mary Lambert, who another college friend uh, who worked at Google. And the thing that was incredible, there are a couple of things that were fun. It was a great chance for us to all be together. And this idea for the patent was, could there be a way to communicate without having to talk and without having to type? Could there be a touch-based way of communication? So if you and I had a bracelet, uh, you know, and mm-hmm. we give it a squeeze, you'd say, you know what, uh, when this interview, rather, rather than me giving you a sign, when we want a break to go get a snack, just give me a squeeze. And so you'd give me a squeeze or you'd be able to tell your, well, your kid would say, when I get to school, I'm going to give you a squeeze. And so it was a, a, a haptic way of communication. And we were going to use pager networks to do it. And we ended up getting a patent, but all of our lives got busy. And it turns out this is actually a pretty hard thing to build, especially in the 90s. Well, so, Apple didn't have a hard time building it. Exactly. It's part of the Apple Watch. And technically, it is part of the Apple Watch. So uh, we kept waiting for Apple to call us, and they still haven't called. So <laughs> if Tim Cook is listening to this podcast- Send, send checks, absolutely. too. Absolutely. It's all So you guys never on. tried to enforce the patents or never tried to do something? We um, we were like open to it, but um, see, Apple should come by the patent so you don't sell it to Samsung. I agree. 
I agree, Barry. Isn't that fair? I think that's a really good idea. I'll take a third. Okay, thank you very much. (laughs) I also recall hearing that you set up your own defined benefits plan. You didn't even know that was an option for someone who was technically self-employed, right? The structure is all the writers and producers work for either themselves or a separate LLC, so it's like a pass-through and they're all partners? Yeah, so what happens is... After you become a certain level of a writer, your accountant will say, time to make a loan out. And so for a writer, that says, what am I going to call my name? As a writer, you think, okay, what do I call my corporation? And some people have really goofy, dumb names for corporations. And when the IRS calls that you regret that you have this really (laughs) dumb name. But the funny thing is, when you go to file an LLC through the corporate paperwork, most of the names have been taken. You have to really work to find a name that any common one or two word combination, somebody's filed it already. Yeah, exactly. So what happened is uh, now that I had a financial advisor, he said, hey, you don't know what your future is. These are good earning years. Can you put a chunk of it away to create your own pension? Mm -hmm. And that sounded great to me. I love that idea. And I end up mentioning this to lots of people, too, because I feel like it's surprising how many of my colleagues don't have financial advisors, how much they would benefit from it. And they, you know, what you guys do, you get a bad rap from all the other guys who aren't doing what you do. Well, it's not clear who's a transactional commission broker who are allowed to call themselves advisors versus a fiduciary registered investment advisor who basically are like your accountant or your lawyer are obligated to do what's in your best interest. And that's been an ongoing debate in Congress for a while. The President Obama, uh, his Department of Labor um, passed that, hey, for retirement accounts, they must be fiduciary. That rule was just overturned um, by the new administration. And so it's very ambiguous. It's very, un- and even worse, there are now hybrid broker dealer. RIAs. So, what hat am I wearing? Am I wearing a, a fiduciary hat? Am I wearing a commit? So, it's really, it, it's so complex and so unclear. When really we could just clean this up and say either everybody needs to be a fiduciary, or if you're not a full blown fiduciary, you can't call yourself uh, a planner, an advisor. You have to be either a CFP or an RIA, and blah, 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 with all the acronyms. But this can be cleaned up. There's too much money at stake from people who don't want it to be cleaned up. I think the estimate was just for retirement accounts was $17 billion a year in fees. So, of course, there's a lot of opposition to that. Yeah, and the upside of having a fiduciary advisor is that your things keep changing in your life. Sure. You have kids. You lose spouses. You inherit money. Think you have health challenges. Things change all the time. Right. And there, I mean, it, you spend all your time. I spend all my time with all these writers in all these rooms, and we don't talk about money because it's too scary and stressful. It's too stressful. Everyone talks about different things, but you want to be able to call up somebody and say, "Hey, I need some help. What is right. this?" And so, I'm super grateful for uh, my advisor and. Um, 
hey, I need a trust and estates lawyer. I need uh, somebody who can help me with this. They have that network. It's yeah, really, exactly. Uh, important. And I know markets are going to go down. I know there's going to be sometime in my lifetime things are probably historically things go down. Some giant thing again, like '87 or whatever. And right. Or or oh eight oh nine. It was fifty seven percent peak yeah. trough. And it's going to be really good to have somebody that I can talk to to say, I know we said this is going to happen. I'm freaking out. Are you? Uh, let's let's talk this out before I do something reckless. Sounds like a, uh, a smart approach. Let, let's talk a little bit about the show. It's been the top-rated sitcom for how long now? For a really long time. I'm not exactly sure. For but years, years and years. years and years. Yeah, we've, we've had a great run, and there are uh, ten writers in, uh, that all work together in this really unique way. And um, You say it, unique, because I always think of uh, my... Framework is shows like Curb Your Enthusiasm, which is also its own thing, or or Seinfeld, where one or maybe two people would write a script and then would go to the writers and the jokes would be added. You guys do a very different approach. It's not a single writer and then it's punched up. It's a whole group discussion, right? Right. The standard model is to have you break the story around a big table and then ha- and come up with an outline and send one or two writers off to write it and then come back and get notes. But what Chuck Lorre noticed in his long-storied career was that when those scripts came back, you spent a lot of time rewriting them. Mm-hmm. So what if we just had this Borg and had everybody's eyes <laughs> on the script and we went through it? And one of the things that happens when you go off to write a script is, of course, it sounded great when you were talking about it. It sounded awesome in that little outline, but now it doesn't make sense. Or, even better, you came up with a twist that is better for the story, but you've got it approved and you've got to kind of stick to the outline right. and you don't want to bug the showrunner. And what we've been what we've been able to do is uh, sit around the room, come up with it together, write the script together, and then have that freedom to pivot and turn and follow the story. So sometimes people will say, oh my gosh, I didn't see how that was going to happen at the end. And we said, well, neither did we. We discovered it along the way. There'd be more fun to go this way or to go that way. Now, now we're in the Chuck Lorre era of television where the laws were passed and no sitcom could be on unless it's either created or produced by Chuck Lorre. Is that is that more or less true? He, uh, he if you think about all of his shows, right, it's... Um, it's, Two and a Half Men was his. So it's Sybil, Grace Under Fire, Dharma and Greg, Two and a Half Men, Big Bang Theory, Mom, Mike and Molly... And the, he just won a Golden Globe for Kaminsky with uh, I love on Netflix. Show. Yeah, and now his new show just got picked up, Bob Hart's Abishola, mm-hmm. which is going to be on CBS. And I saw the pilot; it's really, really funny. And so, it's no he's he's incredibly talented, but he also, and in addition to that, he has this process for making a show, which is different from the the way other people make shows. And that and that ends up having a big impact on how successful the show, or at least that's the correlation that seems to exist. He touches something, and it, I mean, has he had many shows that haven't worked out especially well? You there, have to think about it. To no, yeah, it. yeah. There is a, a, there's, there's a story that a long, long time ago, some network bought a show with him and Tyler Perry, right? right. Those are like the two most popular, oh, right. like those guys, that, that that show didn't get on the air with those two guys, but he 
I don't think anyone has the track record like it's astonishing. Yeah, it's, it's astonishing. It's really amazing. So one of the, so my wife literally started watching The Big Bang Theory from the first show, and I watched more or less what she watches, other than a handful of uh, Project Runway or Flip This mm-hmm. House, and I will specifically. Notice how the show has iterated over, what is it, the 12? 12 years. 12th season? 279 episodes, which wow. is slightly more than your episodes. You're at like 250-something, right? I'm coming up on 250, right. S- soon. Soon you'll pass right. even the Big Bang But it's theory. only taken me five years to get that's there. That's very impressive. That's the beauty of once a week, and, and that's the beauty of two idiots sitting and talking <laughs> in a room, as opposed to a whole television production. Right. So I've noticed, in the beginning, the thing that was so appealing to me I don't watch a lot of television, um, but I got pulled into the show because everybody was pretty dysfunctional. This was a group where most of the main characters, certainly the four male characters, were at various points on the spectrum. Certainly, it's implied that Sheldon is either autistic or Asperger's or somewhere on the spectrum. And over the years, that's kind of moderated a little bit. We've mainstreamed them. Tell us about how this has evolved, and how do you stay true to those original characters? Well, I think it's a testament to Bill Prady and Chuck creating this show, which was those characters were inspired by Bill Prady's experiences here in New York working at a computer company. and the Really brilliant people, bril- not exactly the most socially exactly. So, adept. So brilliant people who are not socially as as not the geniuses socially that they are uh in other ways and so the amazing thing about television is how you can tell such a long story mm-hmm. and how people can change at Evolve. a at a rate that is a little bit more consistent with how things happen it's hard in a movie to have how do you, these these movies where it's like you tell the story of somebody's life in 90 minutes. Right. Is, he's a jerk and now he's enlightened and what a great guy. Exactly. And so for us, the way it's always been is to follow the characters and not necessarily know where we're going. Like when Mayim Bialik showed up uh, to be to go on a date with Sheldon, I think she had two lines in her. In it was the season finale of maybe season three or something. She this just, is because Howard uh, had set them exactly up without, I, without without Sheldon dating. knowing, set them up on a web a dating website exactly, and basically just made Sheldon a complete and total accurate depiction of somebody again, pretty much on the spectrum. And lo and behold, here she comes. Here she comes, and she was. Um, she was great to work with, and then we brought her back for another episode, and then another episode. And I don't think the plan was ever Sheldon's in the. We're ten years from now. Sheldon's going to marry her. Right. <laughs> was it the second season? Was it that early? I'm trying to remember. I think it was season. The, it's all blurs together, but I think it was season three. Because what ended up happening with her introduction was it went from a story about four dysfunctional guys to pretty much four dysfunctional couples and how they manage their lives in in spite of the fact that they're all a little wacky. Melissa Roush, who plays Bernadette, and Mayim Bialik, who play Amy, deserve enormous credit for what they brought to the show and what they the stories they allowed us to tell. So it didn't just be still be about four nerds who were trying to um, you know, go to the comic book store as much as they can. You use Google Maps to find 
um, I forgot what was the Bachelorette or one of those shows. Oh, where yeah. where exactly. all of the America's top models, top models, <laughs> a bunch of a beautiful right. women with low self esteem because they've been rejected and they figure out how to go set up their Wi Fi. Yeah, and that is a part of the show, and it's that's so fun. And what became even more fun was just to just to be able to tell more stories. Did you ever get any? Did the the writers or the producers ever get any pushback? from any advocacy groups that had um, autism or Asperger's or anything like that because of the way uh, they were being uh, depicted? So we never um, You never said, said what it is. Said what it is. and um, But anyone with Google and Wikipedia can figure it out. Well, pe- we, we had some really uh, meaningful, wonderful connections where people have come to us and said, you know... Um, my son identifies with Sheldon, and we uh, every day we sit down and we watch an episode, and then and we talk about it, and we talk about what Sheldon's going through, and we talk about what my son's going through, and that we didn't intend to do that, but it's something that we're so proud of uh, as a group, and I think that uh, we certainly the you know among the ten writers. Everybody is protective of the characters, and I think that showrunner Steve Malaro, um, in a way, is, is the most protective in a, in a really wonderful way, and was going to make sure that Sheldon never did anything that would, uh, you know, cross a line or be objectionable. And so, uh, we we really care about these characters, and they they are alive to us. I can I can totally see see why that would be. Um, I mentioned the show has iterated over the years because it's on syndication. I frequently will see like a first or second or third season show. It was really edgy in the beginning. I mean, it had some really sharp elbows, like where you gasp, like "Wow, that's hilarious!" But oh my god, nobody else on TV says anything like this. Yeah, and what happened is. Around so when the show syndicated around season four, it's normal that when a show syndicates, the audience grows. Right. More people find sure. it, and they say, "Hey, I want to check out the new hey, ones." It's a commercial for the current show, exactly. Uh, but what we found is that families love to watch that the show together, and they would people. Would, we have an audience that of two hundred fifty people that comes on Tuesday night to watch live this studio show. audience, live studio audience, and it's not laugh track. We have microphones in the audience, and so those people would stand up and. And, and thank us or tell us that this is the only show I get to watch with my family. And that was really wow. stuck with Chuck. And, you know, he had created Two and a Half Men, and that's not necessarily a show that you can watch with <laughs> oh, your children. For sure. Uh, with your kids, and that wasn't intended to be that way. And so uh, we we heard how the audience was growing and moving. And, and then, and I, as, I, as I recall even, a lot of us have kids and started watching the show with our kids and so it was more of just a gut check which is do I want to that joke is funny but do I want my you know I want to sit next to my daughter and and hear that and so it became I think a little broader and a broader appeal in that way right so in the early days there would be the wood jokes with Sheldon and everybody he has to be doing this on purpose all the double entendres yes that he was oblivious to you know leading up to the series finale that had to be a bittersweet experience. This has been 12 years of your life. Yeah. Uh, I have uh, a picture I'll show you of 12 years of all the scripts. Because we have, the way a multicam works is 
we do a table read on Wednesday and we rewrite all the jokes that don't work. On Thursday, we do a rehearsal. We see the actors perform it just like a play. Mm-hmm. We fix all the things that don't work. On Friday, same thing. We pre-shoot some stuff on Monday, and then on Tuesday, in front of an audience, we film the whole thing. So, so that's the third. So when you see what's what's broadcast, that's really the third time everybody's going through it. Yeah, and that is a difference from Modern Family or Arrested Development, which is like a movie. Right. Maybe, and because no, they have, lo- no because audience, they'll do a table read if they're lucky, and then. They are they board it and then they're shooting it in pieces all over town, some in the soundstage and stuff. And that is it's incredible how they make that look like a movie. Right. What I love about the multicam is that you have these chances to watch it and watch it like a play and tweak the jokes and listen to the audience and right. have that interplay. And so that became as we went through season twelve and getting to the final episode, these filmings became so emotional because our audience was going through it too. Same thing, right. And so in the last episode that we shot, uh, people started waiting out the night before to try really? to, to get tickets. And um, it was uh, it was festive and joyous, but, but also really emotional. And the only thing I could compare it to is I got to go, one of the great things about this show is how scientists like it and people from JPL come. And so I got invited to go to JPL for when Cassini, sure. the end of the Cassini mission. And that was like a four o'clock in the morning and everybody, hundreds of people were there. But I got to sit in the room with all these scientists who had worked on it over the last 25 years. And these guys who are quite reticent were just watching the satellite and their tears were coming down sure. their face. Not... Not because they were sad. It was just this is the conclusion of of a big part of your life. Twenty five years. That's a that's a really long time. So last question about the Big Bang: Are people watching this live as it broadcasts? Are they DVRing it? Are they streaming it? Is it on demand? You have to have seen how that has evolved over the past because you guys launched right into the start of really a totally new era in television. The iPhone hadn't come out when That's astonishing. The, when the Big Bang Theory started. Uh, YouTube was about two years old, and so it is fascinating to think about how much the world has changed, and also how this show has been so popular despite being made the same way I Love Lucy's made. Right. So we talk about how there's so much innovation, but at the same time, this way of making things still worked. So it's been fascinating to watch how it changes. We we used to look at the ratings and then we then they started to do plus threes for three days and plus seven. And to see how it continues to yeah, be viewed because, after. Because those ratings, you would say, wow, the ratings are going down compared to two years ago, but within three days, they're way up. And within right. seven days, they're way up. And so it's not just that there's one way of consuming any of this stuff and you have to be prepared to to get it out to everybody. One thing that is different, though, is this idea of watching something every week versus if you made 20 episodes on Netflix and just dumped it, people will burn through it. It's a, it's a different kind of an experience. And right. so as it's fascinating as storytellers to think about how to tweak those 
uh, episodes because I remember somebody being on the plane and watching an episode of House and saying like, "Oh my god, I've never seen the show. It was amazing." And then they, well, I'm watching another one. They watch another episode of House and they're like, "That was really good. It was quite like the first episode." And they watched the third episode. <laughs> and they were like, "That was remarkably like the third episode." <laughs> but, but the point was because it wasn't intended to be watched. Right. It was every week we give you something that you like, which is different, but within the confines of it being weekly, it's fine. But it, you're not going to watch 26 episodes of House in a row. So a couple of shows that. Um, I started binging when Miss Maisel came out and when Jack Ryan came out. Day one, I started watching both of them. And I found that if you you only have a finite supply of it, you have to pace yourself. Yeah. Otherwise, you're going to watch it in, a, in three weeks and now you get to wait 49 weeks till the next one comes. And it does, you know, just banging through a bunch of them, it does lose a little something. When you watch it and you get to think about it and digest it and wait a week and then next. So we, The Expanse is another one mm-hmm. that I like to, I don't want to over binge, uh, although I'll watch one or two of them in a row. And But you want to give it a little time to settle in. It's it's not great to to just, I know people who will kill a whole season in a, in a weekend and I think it loses a little bit of something. Or am I, you know, It just alone depends with that. on what that show is. I remember watching the first season of 24 in less than 24 hours. Right. It was back when we went to Blockbuster and was just like, get them and watch them and burn through them all. So it's more like, is it a giant movie? Is it the novel you want to right. just can't put down? Or is it something that you want to like incorporate into your life? So as, as I think as writers, how you want this to be consumed is relevant. And The Sopranos is maybe the extreme version of that, which is, or Game of Thrones, waiting two years between those shows didn't help. You forget, like, wait, what's that connection? Could we make a show like The Big Bang going forward, or is that era now over? Well, I'm such an idiot because I remember telling Bill Prady at season one, this, you know, we live in a new era of television. Syndication is over. There's no way. I love this show. I hope it. I hope it's successful. But there's no way you're ever going to make any money in syndication. And I, Good I was very wrong. <laughs> I was very, very wrong. So I, it seems like it's never too late. There's, there's always audiences like these shows. I love multicams because they're characters that people want to invite into your house and and have a relationship with them uh let's talk a little bit about the entertainment industry there are so many interesting things uh that are going on but first i have to ask you about the emmys the show and its actors and writers have been nominated i don't know 97 times for emmys do you go to the Emmys? What is that experience like? <laughs> if you get nominated, you go to the Emmys. You yeah, just go. You just go. And there's a our editor Peter Chacos was started getting nom- Emmys on Cheers and nominations on Cheers and on Will and Grace. And by the time he started getting them on Big Bang, it was his twentieth nomination and, and no win. So you know it's due. So right? he went. Well, he just thought oh, he's Susan Lucci. He's never gonna have <laughs> right. it. It's never gonna happen. See, I believe in mean reversion. Eventually, he has to win. And he did. It was he reverted to the mean. So he won, I think, three or four in a row. Uh, the and then that's it. He'll never win again. Oh, I, no, no. <laughs> I hope he will keep winning and winning. He the uh, the Emmys are really fun. And what's interesting is when you go on different years and see like whose show it is. So one year we got to sit in the row right with Homeland, 
and that was the year the I think it was their first season and they won and they won big and it's you know first of all it's like you look down and you're like hey there's Manny Patankin you know, right. that, that's fun Claire Danes is great in that Claire show Claire Danes is wonderful in that show and then and then they win and they go up on stage and it's amazing and so uh, it's fun no matter what and but it's fun to win isn't it it's I I've never won an Emmy so I don't know but it seems really fun and it's been it's interesting to think about Chuck Glory, who, while he hasn't won an Emmy... Ever? How is that possible? He's not won a writing Emmy, but almost all of his characters have. And I think it's a testament to how he creates shows that are so focused on characters that an actor can have a great script to really knock it out of the park. And it's... it's in, it's you know you think he just, Allison Janney just won when Jim Parsons won forever right, right. Even he, John was, he was winning every year yeah but didn't the show wasn't the show best comedy Emmy for a long does isn't yes. that really the creators so that we got nominated I, th- I think three or four times and but it was during the run of Modern Family so Modern Family run won a lot and then we won a couple times for The Rock from the Sun but that was when Frasier was winning. And gotcha. those guys, you know, Frazier won like eight years in right, a row. Modern right. Family won six years in a row. Ma- but you guys started long before Modern Family, right? We we were a couple years before Modern Family, right? Yeah. For sure. So so that's that's the Emmys. That's kind of interesting. Um, have you noticed any changes in Hollywood since the Me Too movement began, and specifically within your show? So I think that a- around Hollywood, people are. People get it now. It's mm-hmm. but I've been hopeful that this time would happen, and so um, I think the culture is changing, and it's not that hard to do. You know, if there, when you're in a writer's room, it's important to have everyone be able to speak freely, and so there was even a friends lawsuit years ago. Uh, where the California Supreme Court guaranteed the right of the writers to cross the line, right? Because you, you, you have, have to have figure to find out where the, the right line. Is, line is. You, you if you start self-editing ed- yourself in a creative format, you're going to really radically cut back what what can be done, right? And there is a way to speak freely, but also be respectful of everyone in the room. And right. in fact, if you're trying to get the most out of everybody. If you're pitching jokes that might hurt people's feelings or, or you, you don't want to do anything that silences other people in the room, you know? So I think that the, I think this is all positive for making better shows. And we're going to see, I think in the next few years, uh, just more at what we've seen already, which is just more diversity of voices, which is terrific, and it's gonna it's gonna make better content. Well, we'll we'll be looking forward to that. So, as executive producer, how much responsibility do you take for the financial success of the Big Bang Theory? Almost none. So, <laughs> um, the I certainly uh, yeah, I'm just so grateful to be a part 
of this show. And, and, and you really started pretty much from the, what was it, the second episode? Yeah, so the pilot is the first episode, and then, you know, the first episode of season one is uh, is episode two. So Steve Malaro and I uh, were there from the beginning, and um, the there are so many people that deserve credit way ahead of me and i think that uh it's been so cool to just watch how this has grown and evolved and nobody really i don't think people knew that the show a show about four nerds was going to be connect with people and be so popular with them and when, when did you start to think hey this thing is becoming a monster how long did it take there was a press tour that the cast took and I think it was maybe at the end of season one between season one and season two or between season two and season three is that where you guys went to comic-con so we went to comic-con and that was that was definitely a moment where we're like wow people are into the show that's your audience for sure yes but these and guys, then you guys write it into the show which yes. was hilarious and we always had every year of comic-con we'd have a, a little reel so we'd have all the nerdiest jokes and the superhero references and, and references to Comic-Con. And we always wanted to shoot at Comic-Con, but it's in July and it never, it was always too hard to do. Um, and so the, uh, I think the moment for me was when the actors came back from a press tour in Mexico City and they were all, they just had their eyes were wide open and they were just like, we were the Beatles. Like it was, you know, there was security and there were hundreds of people waiting at the hotel and they didn't even know the show was, they thought they were promoting the, that the show was going to be in Mexico, but it had already become a huge hit. And there was a, a moment for me also where I met somebody, a Chinese person who said, um, I learned English watching your show. Really? That's yeah. kind of interesting. Yeah, and it's the number one comedy in China, too. Uh, let me think about that. I'm wondering what cultural things wouldn't translate. But I guess it doesn't matter. It's just a quirky family. And so that's kind of universal, even though the specifics are so unique to the show. Right. The you know Jokes about Pasadena aren't going to play in <laughs> Beijing, but you can... You know what it's like. Uh, the, that it's that core dynamic of friendship, about relationships, about trying to find love, trying to find career success, and that has been able to to translate. So, when you look around, what's going on with Hollywood? You have giant mergers. You have related to the show all the superhero stuff just going ballistic. When when Disney starts cranking out Marvel comics after that purchase. Marvel comic movies four times a year. What do you think the future of this is going to be in the entertainment space? I don't mean just from the four guys' perspective, but broader, is it becoming a nerd's entertainment world? It's such an interesting question. I feel we're in this wild moment where within three weeks of each other, um, the Marvel arc... Mm -hmm. Game of Thrones, Big Bang, they're all ending. And so, will we look back well, at Well, just this? the Avengers arc is ending. Marvel is going to continue. I mean, Marvel will go forever. Cranking out. Yeah, they have a million Endgame. comics they haven't even touched into yet. No, that's true. That's true. Um, I do think it will, it will have to continue to innovate, right? You have to find, you can't, there weren't, 
there'd never been an arc like Avengers in a movie. You'd never seen anything like Game of Thrones before. Big Bang, you hadn't had a show like that. And so that's kind of like why reality TV was hot, where you're like, oh, wait, I've never seen a show with guys stuck on an island. And, but but then, I thought that was cheap. That's why that was so so. Well, hot. those ratings were great. Those ratings yeah. were really great. And so it's... I will, it, I will admit to watching the first couple of seasons of Survivor, and then it, it kind of got repetitive. It's interesting. To me. People on staff still love that show. Really? Like they, they still love it, and it, there's something special about it. Hmm. The, uh, so it's just about being able to innovate and entertain an audience... And as you have fewer giant corporations, are they going to become more risk averse? Mm-hmm. Are they going to say, well, we know Avengers worked, so let's make more Marvel? You know, it's this, they just did that with Star Wars, right? They, they cut back on a Star Wars movie because the one before it didn't do as well. Well, they were cranking out, cranking out too fast were, and too, too much. Um, although when we look at risk aversion, look at Disney. All right, so they buy Star Wars and they buy Marvel and they buy Fox. And they said, oh, yeah, Netflix, we're going to put out Netflix at half the price. They seem to be taking or embracing risk. I don't know if everybody else is, but when a giant company like Disney has figured out, if we don't throw stuff up against the wall, we'll never know what, you know, it's the great Jeff Bezos quote. If we don't fail, we're not taking enough chances to see what might work. Yeah, exactly. And they just took a big write down on Vice, so they're you right. know, like that's the thing you take by bets. big write down for them. It was a couple hundred million, million dollars, which is really a. Uh, I thought you don't track all this stuff, or is that Hollywood enough? That's related? entertainment. It's so all entertainment. You have to for track me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. two hundred million dollar write down for Disney is like I, I had a five dollar bill. I, I can't find where, where to go. Where to right. go? It's <laughs> um, you know, I I think. The stuff to me that's so interesting is how people are able to build businesses outside of that model. So mm-hmm. watch how sitcoms, you know, Issa Rae with Insecure or the guys that made High Maintenance, they started as web series, they did proof of concept. Uh, there's a moment where these shows can live on their own or come into the corporate structure. And so. Uh, how for people breaking one of the things I say is that to this, the students at USC that I teach is that part of breaking into Hollywood might not be breaking into Hollywood that mm-hmm. you might you if you can be entrepreneurial and think about new platforms and you know TikTok is this huge thing that's happening right, right. now that if you're under 25 you'd love it and so how can you become a great content creator for TikTok or how can you how can you monetize that how can you do new things people haven't done before so last question about this what is the entertainment industry going to look like 10 or 20 years from now is it going to be what we think of as Hollywood or as you are implying it's going to be far more balkanized and far more spread out and not the old studio system remotely well, the, the simple answer is, is nobody knows. But the stuff that's interesting to me is that there we're going to be more and more like Spotify, where everything is available. All on demand. All on demand. And for me, that makes me want 
to actually maybe it's just I'm being older. I don't want to I don't want to listen to more music when I have access to more music. It's kind of overwhelming. Like right. I want to go to my record collection and I was like, oh, I'll play that. That's so maybe, the beauty of Pandora versus Spotify is that you can seed a playlist with your favorites yes, and, and yet still new hear stuff. new stuff that's similar. And that's the most interesting thing about Spotify is that it will have this, these recommended lists with is a great way to find new music. So I, for me, it's like the Netflix algorithm suggesting what shows you want is fascinating, but also are we just going to is you know to do the economic parallel are we going to have too much faith in models right and so what is the role of humans being able to kind of create and innovate and then the the other thing that i wonder about is how you see it in every family where it used to be one tv screen right. and everyone's got a tablet and everyone complains about that, but from a content creator standpoint, it means, hold on a second, we just went from needing four shows at the same time, one show at the same time to four shows at the same so, time. And as you get to driverless cars, what are people going to do? They're going to watch TV. So <laughs> so when you think about you, 20 years from now, you're in a driverless car that's super luxurious, you get to live far out of town because it doesn't matter, you commute in for an hour or back, you plan, oh, I'm going to watch Game of Thrones Part 9 on that ride in and on the ride out, how you can consume this content is going to drive a lot of what it's going to be and how long it's going to be and and where it's going to go. So, so I agree with you, except I think they're going to spend more time listening to podcasts. I agree. It's People, my... I love podcasts. I love driving. I drove to uh, Sacramento and listened to your podcasts, and it's much more engaging than music. It's it's so different because it's a whole long story. We'll go into that in a little bit. Can you stick around a, a few minutes? I have a bunch more questions sure. for you. We have been speaking with Dave Gash. He is a writer and the executive producer for The Big Bang Theory, which just had its season finale. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and stick around for the podcast extras, where we keep the tape rolling and continue discussing all things television-related. You can find that at iTunes, Overcast, Stitcher, Bloomberg, wherever your finer podcasts are sold. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Check out my daily column on bloomberg.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, Dave, thank you so much for doing this. I say this every week, um, and it's always true, but it's especially true this week. I've really been looking forward to having this conversation. We've been trying to do this for a while, and it just worked out great that we're recording this on a Monday, and the by the time this drops, either the same day or the night before, the finale um, will have aired. So the one question I didn't get to that I have to ask you What's next for Dave Gash? What are you going to do after this? I know you probably, the assumption is, oh, he doesn't have to do anything. Again, this show's been in syndication forever. But you're a young guy. You don't want to not work for the rest of your life, do you? I definitely want to keep working. And you're too paranoid not to work. Yeah, no, for sure. I'll, and um, and I didn't create the show. So, <laughs> so if I created the show, I'd be on a Did, floating on a hover, hovercraft uh, or something. <laughs> but... Uh, I want to 
take the lessons of the last 12 years mm -hmm. and apply them on new shows. Mm -hmm. I think this multicam world where you get the chance to rehearse for a couple days and tweak the jokes and then do it in front of a live audience is it, it's old it is old fashioned but i the success of the big bang is testament that people like it and even bringing back full house on netflix that has been a big hit for them really uh, i would not have guessed that i was never a full house yeah me neither so i have to ask you so you're a comedy writer what comedy shows do you like to watch so i don't like to watch much because it all feels like work. So when I'm watching, of course you can't help but I critique and take notes, and or feel jealous and <laughs> have low self-esteem that that's such a good joke that I wish I'd come up with it. Right. So I mean, I thought Thirty Rock was flawless, and I was obsessed with it. I, I what they did in their, especially the first two seasons. Oh my were gosh. amazing. It's amazing. I remember I had like the worst flu a couple of years ago, and having seen it all when it broadcast, I just binged all three seasons, or the first, whatever it was. And you could see when it starts to change. Like at a certain point, you could tell different writers are involved. Mm -hmm. But the first two seasons were so fresh and so hilarious. They're amazing. It's like there there are special seasons, right? It's like what right. is it, The Office seasons two and three, right? And it, a lot of it just has to do with kind of where those characters are and what's where they happening. go, right? Um, I have. I have been able to watch and see how hard it is to make television that I have a lot of forgiveness for when people say, like, oh, that show stinks. And my like, instant Don't react, you understand? Yeah, it's so much work to stink. Just yeah, to get to like that so level. it's so hard that they got that on TV. Like, do you know how many – they got notes from the studio and the network on every outline and every rewrite, and then they still had to get there. And Does Chuck Lorre's shows still get notes, or can you guys do what you want? He has earned this uh, – place where he does not get notes and that is an extraordinary luxury for us as writers to work in that world so, so the the story with seinfeld and and larry davis no notes we're, we're not interested somehow they managed to carve that out and obviously curb doesn't seem to get a whole lot of notes because it's so improv do you what what shows do you find interesting that way do you watch either of those yeah there i think what they did on curbed is 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 great and it's fascinating how they do that it's improvised but heavily it's really interesting structured if, improvisation if you've ever read if you ever read one of those outlines where it's really dense um the i have students who think oh well since curb is improvised i'm gonna go do an improvised thing and if you ever shoot an improvised thing it's just a nightmare because they all spin off on all these crazy right. directions you have to be really focused on and that's nailing an, those story beats and that's an amazing cast it's incredible cast right really yeah. stop and think everybody on that show is a rock star. It's it's just astonishing. Any other comedy shows that tickle your fancy? I think the Arrested Development it was <laughs> hilarious, and um, I'm really excited about. I'm not trying to just uh, uh, like promote the other Chuck Lorre world, but I think this new Bob Hart's Abishola is a really cool show, which is about a Billy Gardell who was uh, Mike from Mike and Molly in the pilot has a cardiac event and goes to the hospital and wakes up and there's a nurse and she's a Nigerian immigrant and he falls for her. And it's such a simple, sweet story, but you, you watch this pilot and you're like, I want to see more. I want to see these characters. I want to see what's going on. So I'm really excited for that. Huh. So I only have you for a finite amount of time. Let's jump to our favorite questions that we ask our guests, sort of our, our speed round. Tell us the first car you ever own, year, make, and model. 
1976 AMC White Hornet, which mm-hmm. my parents got from the telephone company. And Meaning it was a, a fleet car? It was and a fleet car, and they got it for $500. And They paid too much. They paid too much. <laughs> and then That's a POS for sure. I hit a telephone pole because I uh, it was Connecticut in the spring and too much sand from the snow. Right. And, and uh, I totaled the car because it would have cost $600 to fix it. Right. So it cost more, just a simple repair, cost yes. more than the whole, the whole car. Um, what's the most important thing people don't know about Dave Gash? Well, they know about the patent. That's really, so that's the, the I was going to say that's thing. But I tried to start a chocolate company. In the oh, first right. season of Big Bang Theory, at the same time, while um, Quantum Candies, so I remember. So that. It was going to be called RX Chocolates, and the idea was it was going to be apothecary bottles, and it was going to have the amount recommended of dark chocolate every day, and you pop it in your mouth. Okay, I think that's a good idea for Funny, chocolate. Right? Yeah. And what happened to that? Well, it turns out I'm much better at coming up with ideas <laughs> than I am at starting businesses. Right. It's it's concept versus execution. Exactly. Exactly. That, that's why you need a partner for that I do. Sort of stuff. Um, who were some of your early mentors? Who really guided your career in television? Well, I mentioned Rob Long, who's this mm-hmm. guy who showed me that there was actually a path. And the other guy in that radio station was a teacher named Craig Thorne, and uh, he has since passed away. And he just couldn't have more of an impact in terms of how to live your life, how to help people, um, the power. He's one of the funniest guys in all the years in Hollywood, one of the funniest guys I've ever met, and how, just uh, how to how to live your really how to live your life and then working with Bonnie and Terry Turner on Third Rock from the Sun they were they created a family in their writing staff and uh, I'll I remember working that first night that first year it'd be a Friday night and they'd say oh uh, I'm sorry we have to work past dinner and I would think to myself great I don't want to go home this is so fun wow so you're an investor and have been for a while who has influenced your approach to either investing um, or thinking about markets. Well, I mentioned the that Gordon Murray book, which had a really mm-hmm. profound impact on me. And you know, I, I I think the work of Gene Fama. This I wish everybody knew more broadly about this efficient market theory. If only he would win a Nobel Prize for that, people would find out. Then about it would it. get out. Right. I took uh, <laughs> I took macro econ with Nordhaus. And I took winner, my, winner, right. and then I took micro with Giannakopoulos, who might win it someday. Right. And um, didn't he win? Um, what did he win the Bates Award? He won something big. Right. And they, they didn't talk about personal. Inve- they should. Ju- I wish they would just say, be a long-term investor, keep fees low, uh, invest in a broad basket of stocks. You sound like me long. now. Yeah. And <laughs> and. Um, but what are they going to do for the next sixteen weeks of the class? Exactly. Right. And so it's so simple, but I feel like um, there's just so much noise pushing the other way. For sure. Tell us about your favorite books. What do you like to read? Comedy, non-comedy, fiction, non-fiction? So John Irving had a giant impact on me growing up, and Cider House Rules is still one of my favorite books of all time. And um, there's a... Then this guy, Rob Long, wrote a great book called Conversations with My Agent. And so if you ever want to know like what Hollywood's like, that's a good little little book to follow. And um, tell us about a time you failed and what did you learn from the experience? I fail all the time. I mean, 
uh, pitching is failure, right? You're pitching ideas, you're pitching things. Uh, there's so many pilots that I've written and sold that that never got made. But what I what I realized is that you really can't define failure for five or ten years because what comes from that as a result of not getting that thing what else happens mm -hmm. and it's happened when i was dying to get on spin city and i didn't get a meeting and then i got the third rock from the sun job which was a dream job i was so excited to try and get a job on 30 rock and i had a meeting and then it got canceled because they hired their friend and then that led to big bang theory so failure it's easy to make failure one thing but I think if uh, if you're a long-term investor, if you have a long time horizon, right. you you can redefine it. You have to look at it across the continuum, I guess. What do you do for fun outside of the writer's room? By I, the way, I imagine that the writer's room is just hilarious, and I know it's work, but it must be just so mo so entertaining. It really is so entertaining. And when you when people make fun of you on when they're professional comedy writers who do it. It's like, wow, that was so, so good. Sick burn. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that way you, 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 can't, you can't be frustrated or embarrassed or whatever. You're just like, wow, that's so good. And so uh, <laughs> that is a, it's a joy to hang out with those guys. It, it still works. It's still stressful. They're, people get mad at each other. Things happen. Uh, you still have to do your job. But, but the way to have those funny people around you is amazing. And really the thing that's so fun for me to do is to teach. And I teach every fall at USC and this webisodes class and it's so fun to take these things that i've learned in my career in television but then apply them to this new medium and give say to these kids you have all the power to make your own tv show which i never had and you know for years and years into my career what are you most excited about within the entertainment industry what you can do just with your phone is more than Martin Scorsese and Ted Turner could ever do in the 1970s. That That's amazing. Um, so if a millennial or a college student came up to you and said, we're interested in a career in television or entertainment, what sort of advice would you give them? If you're a writer, if they're a writer, I'd say there are three kinds of writing. There's writing on the page. There's writing when you're working with an actor and how you change it to fit that actor's voice. And then there's the writing you do when you edit. And you used to have to be a showrunner to do all those things, but now you can do it. So how you write is different now, and you can post and get feedback and build an audience. Make your webisode and have a discipline so that you're able to fit it into your schedule so that you can say, one weekend a month, I'm going to shoot, and I'm going to make one-minute episodes, but I'm going to make four of them. And every Monday, just like Barry Ritholtz, I'm, I'm going to drop my I'm going to drop my episodes. And by the time you've made 50 of them, you're going to say, well, I've learned so much. I'm such a better writer. And number 36 is the best thing I've ever done. And it's the one thing I want to show somebody. And our final question, what do you know about the world of producing and writing and comedy today that you wish you knew 20 years ago when you were first getting started? Almost 20 years ago. Uh, no, more than 20. Yeah, 25 years ago. I would say that it is the one of the lessons from Chuck Lorre is he treats writing with a group of people, uh, someone described it like jazz, where you sit down and you don't know where it's going to go. There's a structure, you know, in a jazz thing, you do eight bars and I do eight bars and we go around. There's a structure to the scene and a goal to the scene, but being open to that freedom, it's kind of being comfortable with uncertainty that we were talking mm -hmm. about. The 
being being able to execute, but being able to be open to that possibility of maybe not knowing where you're going to go and drawing the best out of people is absolutely magical and just have faith in that process. Quite, quite fascinating. We have been speaking with Dave Gash. He was the executive producer and writer for The Big Bang Theory, as well as other shows. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple, iTunes, Stitcher, Overcast, Bloomberg.com, wherever finer podcasts are found. And you can see any of the other, I don't know, let's call it 238 episodes we've done previously. I'm just ballparking that. Um, we love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff who helps put out this uh, conversation each week. Medina Parwana is my producer slash audio engineer. Michael Boyle is our booker. Atika Valbrun is our project manager. Michael Batnick is my head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg Radio.